to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. It's an age-old question and challenge. How do we value our sponsorship assets? And unfortunately, there's still large parts of the rights holder section of the industry peddling predetermined sponsorship packages largely based on the income they are looking to generate and not necessarily the value that they can deliver. Despite some of the best brains in the industry consistently counselling against such approaches, we still see it. And yes, there are many factors that come together in an organisation that means that we end up just offering predetermined packages, but not deeply understanding the value of sponsorship assets as standalone assets is always a contributing factor. No one pretends there is a simple answer. We've had conversations with rights holders over the years where they've been convinced there is some magic formula that we can apply that can spit out the market value of every single one of their sponsorship assets. And they've begged us to share it with them. And sadly, we didn't have the secret magic formula. However, led by Rob Mills, who will join us later on in the show, Turnstile Group are tackling this issue head-on with valuations based on actual market rates. Now, while the industry spins in circles making subjective assumptions, Turnstile is making definitive valuations. Turnstile uses actual prices being paid for rights globally to determine real-world market values of the three key components of a sponsorship deal, the benefits, exposure, and the intellectual property. This unique approach not not only provides realistic and quantifiable sponsorship valuations for buyers and sellers, but clear visibility across the three components of value. I'm Daniel Oyston, and welcome to episode 75 of Inside Sponsorship. It is great to have you listening in to another episode, and it's also great to have listeners from all over the world. And some listeners have gotten in touch to say hi, and now they get a shout out. And those people are Glenn Paul, Ben McCormack, and Matt Davey. Glenn Paul is a professional golfer, coach, mentor, and presenter and he tagged me in on a post on LinkedIn that he enjoyed. Thanks for the tag, Glenn, and glad you are enjoying the show. Ben McCormack sent me a message that said, also stick me down for a shout out for the next podcast as you really do sound sad when you don't have any. I'm loving the podcast. It's a great listen as I drive around the North Island of New Zealand and has generated many good ideas. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Ben. I hope you and the family are well. And yes, I am actually really sad when I don't have any shout outs because listeners, I love getting messages from you about where you're working and what you're up to. It really is great hearing from you. Matt Davey, also from New Zealand, is the commercial sponsorship manager at NZME and he wrote, thanks Daniel, appreciate it, love your work with the podcasts, always a great listen. Thanks Matt, hope you're crushing it in New Zealand and hopefully we've got another good show for you to enjoy. And on the show, as always, we look at one of Core's latest blogs and this time around, Mark Thompson, Core Software's head of international business, joins us to chat about sponsorship measurement and reporting, the fan data Way. Here's Mark. Mark Thompson, welcome back to the show. Your blog this time around is Sponsorship Measurement and Reporting, the Fan Data Way. Now, sponsorship measurement isn't something new. It's been part of the industry for years, maybe decades, led by pioneers in the early days such as Repucom, Cantar, and, and maybe a number of other larger agencies and they're all trying to find ways of overlaying some tangible ROI data 
on top of sponsorship spend so that people could justify either yes it was great or no it wasn't so great around those sponsorship decisions why are we still talking about it why is it still relevant why is it important why haven't we got it right yet what's changing well i mean it's tracking audiences is also not new however the concept of tracking audience engagement you know around what that means to the value of ip to a specific team or brand and how engaged those audience are is only something which has been possible through the development of technology so it's changing because of technology it's changing because of more sophistication and it's it's, it's also because of that it's changing the way partnerships are measured and who can actually enter the sponsorship game for a long time now, sponsorship professionals have been sort of spruiking the size of their membership and fan bases and, you know, base demographics behind those and using that overlaid with sort of general audiences because of TV broadcasts to sort of prove value to their partners and to, to beat out the little guy for a, you know, or the little-er guy for a sponsorship proposition. But the acts, sort of advent of technology enables rights holders who now measure far deeper than ever before or across sort of consumption rates, engagement rates, sort of specific actions, who, when, and where those actions sort of take place that allows organizations with highly engaged fan bases to now compete with people that have maybe big fan bases that aren't as highly engaged. And so rather than looking at a really sort of surface-based sort of approach on who you will sponsor as a brand, you can actually now drill deeper. But how does that mean new players can enter? I mean, what it means for rights owners at all levels and across all industries is that, you know, providing the data and capabilities of obtaining that data are uh, there and anyone can sort of then confidently enter the sponsorship space with a compelling story so you know data is great and we talk about data and data and data and data the one thing that we kind of talk about all the time as well is storytelling data is only good if you can put it in the context of a story and actually talk about what it means and there's a reason to the story and at all levels of sponsorship pitching you know scoping researching reporting there has to be a story aligned with the data for it to actually make sense. So how about we do, we do something different? And I'll, I'll Why don't just, you tell me a story? Yeah, I'm going to tell you a story. I'll, I'll paint you a picture around, Gather a, around. a fully made-up uh, case study. <laughs> okay? Are you winking? You want to wink. You're no, looking this, at me like you no, want to wink. This is fully made up, right? It's Okay, it is fully made up. And we've changed the names to protect the guilty? Uh, well, you can... Or is it really fully made up? It is really fully okay, made up. Okay, right So Capsy, right? Which is how long did it take you to come up with that name? Well, you know, I thought of two big beverage brands and <laughs> put them together. That's how some people make kid names. So, Capsi's a, a beverage brand that has marketing objective of reaching demographics of 16 to 25 year old females. Okay. They're a well known brand. Brand awareness and exposure is not high in their set of objectives now. Because they're well known, they already have it, they've got that covered, don't need a sponsorship to make that happen. Correct. Um, they're struggling though in reaching the demographic that they really want to, you know, of audiences due to sort of previous perceptions of their brand and their drinking instances in that demographic is therefore lower than they had hoped. And, you know, being such a big brand, targeting new audience sectors is really important. And changing perceptions is kind of hard. Correct. Particularly if they're well-known and long-ingrained. Yeah. So they're struggling with something which is continual growth of something that's already massive. So two rights holders approach them. The first one is rights holder A, which has an audience of a million people, engagement and consumption rates of 10%, limited access though to their IP of their athletes due to their size and the EBA within the, within the sport. 
They can, however, boast larger audience viewerships than anyone else on TV. Rights holder B has an audience of half of that, 500,000 people, small. Mm, That doesn't sound good. But they have engagement and consumption rates with this passionate audience of 40%. So it's massive fan loyalty due to the unique nature of their sport. And brand ambassadors are willing to give time to leverage corporate partnerships. So I once got a D in maths. Okay. The teacher was really nice, but I wasn't very good at this class. Well, so, so my question would be, who would you choose, right? So well, someone- that's what 10% of 1 million is 100,000. Yeah. 40% of 500,000 is 200,000. Correct. So someone who can give you twice the audience or someone that can give you twice the addressable market. And what did you say? They've got a massive fan loyalty due to the unique. So it sounds as though they've got much more ownership and buy-in. It's not as superficial and they've got higher engagement rates anyway. They're a boutique sport perhaps. They they might be a second-tier sport, an Olympic sport, something that's not broadcasted every day. The big thing here is the brand ambassadors willing to give time as well because they're not as sophisticated and big a sport. So the, the two scenarios are one can give you twice the audience size, you know, a million people watching whatever. The other can give you twice the addressable market. So you can see I've done the maths to make it easy for myself. And me, thank you. So in traditional terms, rights holder B is only in the game. They can only enter that conversation with that big beverage partner if they know their data and their fans. So if they don't haven't done the data and the fan work, and they haven't got their fan data dialed in, then suddenly they can't they can't be a challenger and rights holder, you know, that is matching it in certain scenarios with their previously, you know, untouchable competitor. So it's, it's interesting on a couple of points because rights holder A would be walking around town basically just their unique selling point, so to speak, is we've got massive eyeballs. We're the biggest, we're the best. We're the biggest, we're the best. We've got all these people, but... Rights holder B has to, as you said, be really dialed in with their data. And interestingly, when they're presenting that to people, it's going to feel and come across as though they are really dialed in. So it's it's in their tone. It's in their presentation. They know this stuff back to front. They've looked at areas of weakness. They know how to address it. They know where they're good. And that gives a much different tone to the presentation than rights holder A who goes, we've got a million people. And and what is what is really important here is that the brand know their demographic and their objective and the rights holder know they can directly address address that because they've done some research so essentially rights holder b without knowing it they now have a bi team right they've now got bi and data that is working for them to change the way that they approach things and the other thing that starts to sort of rise to the top of that conversation is that feeling that rights holder b really knows that they're a good match for that brand where rights holder a is just running around going well we've got big eyeballs so if you want big eyeballs you better come with us it changes the conversation righto so how does this actually change the way we run our business? So, so previously, you know, to the modern day, commercial teams have sometimes by design or sometimes just by default separated their B2C business. So you know, let's talk in a sporting context around membership, ticketing, licensing, marketing. So people, things that you're trying to engage, engage with an audience, right? So that's the B2C business. And they've, they've separated that from their B2B business, so sponsorship, corporate sales and events. So much so that sometimes they sit in different buildings, sometimes they don't talk. 
No, they, they're just separate business units. But wow. but the growing trend of BI teams, the availability of new technology, the increased push by brands to shift away from logo-driven approaches in sponsorship into sort of moving those audiences from borrowed to owned is really shifting how everything fits together. So, so nowadays, the B2C business operations of selling tickets, memberships, and running marketing campaigns and, and then tracking those results feeding them into a central source of truth within technology, showing a consolidated view of a customer is becoming the driving force behind the B2B storytelling and value metrics. So so rather than just going and grabbing a, we know that X number of people watched on TV, they're utilizing their own unique data set that their own internal business is starting to generate and that is starting to change the way that they tell stories. So suddenly, rather than being two separate business units, the B2C drives the b2b and the campaigns and utilizations of assets by the b2p partners in sort of sponsorship activation is creating more engagement for the b2c customers so your fans and stuff and the cycle just goes on and on creating a rich and sort of unrivaled marketing channel direct to audiences which can't be replicated through other marketing forms and 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 hence the the current day value of sponsorship is exposed Sounds exciting. Are you excited about what's next? Mate, it excites, what excites me is that, you know, brands is what brands can bring to that equation. So so by knowing with some degree of certainty what markets, territories, and demographics, psychographics can be engaged by specific campaigns via sponsorship, which brands know, they've, they've got smart data around that. Um, you know, brands and those organizations with rich data around consumer behavior can start introducing consumer data metrics to the conversation you know then we can start getting really good ip values then we can start seeing which is the right and smart sponsorship decision to be made by brands and you know both ends of the sponsorship conversation can be predicted and measured against actual roi in terms of hard return you know you add to this the concept of lifetime loyalty and ip then the whole measurement game is facing a new frontier that you know can be delivered to rights owners and brand immediately and it could lead to a whole new exciting way of selling, you know, delivering, reporting, you know, scoping out partnerships. And, you know, what, what makes me excited is that the industry that we're sitting in here is is definitely not dying. It's just getting stronger and stronger. And, you know, the, the next people to take on this sort of industry are going to have something really cool at their fingertips. Well, there you go. There's Mark Thompson at his most excited <laughs> about what is on the horizon with this topic. So if you want to read through that in slow time in all its glory, just head along to coresoftware.com. Tomo, thanks for joining us. Thanks, buddy. Rob Mills is the global CEO and director at Gemba and Turnstile. In hindsight, he was probably always destined to work in sport and entertainment because as a kid, he developed a cricket tournament hosted in a car park near his home, ran horse racing nights and built stadiums in art class. His first job was working for a publishing company that specialised in sport, music and theatre publications. From there, Rob spent 10 years at Adidas where he worked in apparel, footwear and communications, which he says gave him a holistic understanding of the business. In the last couple of years, he was part of the Adidas Global Olympic Strategy Team. In 2001, he took the plunge and he started a business that has evolved into Gemba, a high-end consultancy providing insight and strategy to the global sport and entertainment industry. After more than 10 years valuing literally hundreds of sponsorship assets for buyers and sellers, Gemba was seeing consistent issues arising around the lack of accurate pricing benchmarks in the industry. Frustration was growing as rights holders and brands sought to move from beyond just exposure measurement to understanding the full value of sponsorships. Turnstile, developed and managed by Gemba, 
is Gemba's response to that market need. Here's Rob to discuss all things sponsorship, valuation, and measurement. Rob, welcome to the show. We always start with an icebreaker question, just a little bit of fun, just to get the interview off on on a bit of a fun foot and to get to know you. And in my research, I read your profile on the Gemba website, which not only gave the usual outline about your experience, but also provided a rundown of a day in the life of Rob Mills. And apart from the very uncivilized activity of a 6.15 a.m. run, the part of your day that caught my eye was 12.30 p.m., stroll down to the food carts with the team with a strong resolution to mix it up today for lunch. And after much bluster, we order the usual. And I'm curious, what is the usual for lunch? The the local food carts are a bit of a, a, bit of a metaphor for life, I think. Um, we're getting more and more choices thrown at us, but we often pick the same things, don't we? Yes, at the moment, the go-to for lunch is salad if I if I don't get that six fifteen morning run away. <laughs> and if if I feel like we've had a good week and we've had a few wins and we're up and about, we might have a uh, Friday treat, which is a uh, a chicken concoction with fries. So that's the, that's the uh, the span of the um, the London food lane. Excellent. So while you are a director at and CEO of Gemba, 18 years ago in 2001, you took the plunge and you started the business that has now evolved into Gemba. What made you take the plunge and what did that original business look like? I think I was looking for a new challenge at the time. I, I had about 10 years of Adidas, um, which was an amazing experience and, and, you know, really literally almost every day got up and wanted to go to work, which is very rare. But uh, got through the Sydney Olympics and sort of felt like I could keep doing that, and it was great fun. But probably was looking for a new challenge. And um, as I started looking at different options, um, I suppose the idea of um, starting uh, our own business uh, evolved. And thought at the time, the industry was an interesting point. Sort of post Olympics, um, I think rights holders were looking to sort of inject a high degree of sophistication into their business models. Um, probably. Broadcast money was really starting to flow into sport at that point, so they were sort of gearing up for new issues. And similarly, you could sort of see that brands were also really looking at heightening their sophistication around how they invested in sport entertainment. So sort of felt like the time was right. Um, you know, at the time, the business um, had it look. It looked very small and it looked very scary. But, you know, the fundamental vision was probably the same, that, you know, sort of how could you help make the sport entertainment industry better um, sort of by infusing better insights with strategy and creativity. I think that core essence of the business is still the same. It's obviously, you know, played out in different ways from when we started, but that sort of core essence is still what drives most of the business. It would have been a, a lot happened over the 18 years since you first stepped out on your own. But if we fast forward to 2019 now, what does Gimba look like in terms of services, clients and its global footprint? We talk about our business being um, focused around insight, strategy, and communication. So we, we have a, a really, um, you know, important part of our business is insight. So both proprietary insights and, and customised research, and, and looking at various data sources. We have a strategy division that um, helps brands make decisions around where they invest, and, and helps rights holders across all parts of their organisation and then we have a comms business which is um, helping brands execute and leverage their investment in sport entertainment. So they're the sort of three sort of operating pillars of the business. We have offices in Sydney, Melbourne where we started um, and then Shanghai, Auckland and London now. 
And from a client perspective, on the brand side, um, our major clients are Toyota, Coca-Cola, Adidas, and McDonald's. And on the right shoulder side, walking up actually by Formula One, Manchester City, DDMC, Fortis, who are the agency who are um, running the Asian Football Confederation rights, um, and um, the National Rugby League, this is our main rights, rights holder clients. Very impressive, and part of that that growth and development of the company has been the introduction of Turnstile, which was developed and is managed by Gemba. So I've got a bit of a multi-part question. How did Turnstile come about? What prompted you to create it as a separate entity, and what does Turnstile actually offer? I might start with what it offers because it probably gives some context to some of those other questions. Um, Turnstile's really focused about trying to bring a a heightened level of sophistication and rigor to sponsorship transactions. So the primary focus has been helping both brands and rights holders understand fair market pricing. Our view was that there was no real industry benchmarks to help both buyers and sellers understand what the fair market price of a sponsorship is. There's been a lot of focus on advertising equivalencies and things like that, but they don't really have any connection to actual transaction price. So we, through our consultancy offer, you know, for the best part of 10 years, have seen that both buyers and sellers were asking that question about what's the fair market price for a sponsorship. So that was sort of the, the catalyst to put an internal product development team on that and, and build out Turnstile. We branded it differently for a couple of reasons. Um, one, from a market-facing perspective, we saw the opportunity to potentially collaborate with other agencies, and that's probably a little bit more problematic with the with the Gamba brand. And also wanted a brand that was more focused around um, a sort of software and data proposition um, than what the Gamba brand is. So. From a market-facing perspective, we decided to brand it differently. And then from an internal perspective, we're also um, setting up as a separate entity because um, we are looking to take investment into Turnstile to help it grow as well. So there was sort of a, an internal need as well as a market-facing need to, to brand it differently. Fair market price is, as you rightly said, the ongoing question, and a lot of people want to know it. But how big does a rights holder have to be to start to really invest in this space? It's probably not necessarily just about size. I think it's probably more about sort of where they are in that commercialisation process. I think what we're increasingly finding is that those rights holders that are, you know, perhaps a really good, successful commercial program, you know, the Formula Ones of the world and similar, they're sort of coming to us because it's about unlocking that sort of extra incremental value. And I think what we're finding is that... Um, to really unlock that incremental value, you, you start to have conversations around sort of intellectual property, about how you might regionise your packages and have a, you know, an Asia-Pacific package versus a North American package, and getting a more really granular understanding of the benefits in contracts as well. So we tend to find it, it's you know on one spectrum those more mature organisations are looking to do it. And then I think the other one is we are getting a lot of sort of start-up sport and entertainment properties that don't have any history of, of a price and are coming to us for advice around sort of what that asset might look like in the market once they start the commercialisation process. And similarly, what about brands? Are they in the same sort of boat or have you seen a trend in typical size and maturity before they start investing in this space? I think this is an interesting opportunity. We're sort of seeing for different reasons both rights holders and brands wanting the same thing. Rights holders are increasingly wanting to understand the value of their their brand or you know or their intellectual property, as we describe it. But similarly, um, a lot of mature brands, we don't necessarily want just to buy signage or exposure assets. We're really investing in these properties 
you know, to access these communities or to be able to tell a story through a particular sport entertainment property. So they are also interested about what the value of intellectual property is. So what we're finding is that brands that are perhaps moved past that sort of straight awareness play, which is the majority of brands at best in sport entertainment, are, are leaning forward and wanting to understand what the more holistic value equation is for a sponsorship and in particular what, what the IP value is. So they're the types of brands that, um, you know, engaging saying, oh, we're currently doing some work with Adam Askell, I believe, who's a you know, long-term investor in sport and they're wanting to understand the value equation differently to what they, you know, would have said, you know, 10, 20 years ago. There's a lot of data in this space on both sides of the fence. How do you ensure that for the rights holder that that historical fan data, which can be quite big and maybe even complex and housed in various systems and maybe even disparate systems, it can be very, very valuable how do you ensure that it still gets utilised where relevant rather than a rights holder just chasing the new shiny toys and, and maybe even throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Part of what we're doing in, in Gamba from a consultancy perspective and particularly with Turnstile is, is trying to weave together a data story that takes data from different sources. So there's, there's not necessarily right or wrong in data. It's about how you actually apply it to a particular strategic question or outcome you're looking for. So, you know, I think I think the trouble is that data gets talked in absolutes. A lot is that, oh, you know, we've got this new, as you say, shiny new tool and that's the answer or, or then something else comes along next week. Our view is that probably most data sources have some role in that strategic build. It's about sort of how you weave that together. So we do spend, you know, a lot of time, you know, from a consultancy perspective, again, by sort of sitting down saying, okay, well, these are the data sources and this is probably the role of data in addressing the question that, that you're after. I think the other point is just how clients actually sort their own data out. And, and I think, um, you know, where we get you know, clients, um, so like Williams Formula One Racing, who's, you know, using core um, and sponsor software, that's, that's great for us because we can link straight into that system and make sure that we're pulling out the right data out of the system as well. So, you know, part of the challenge is sort of making sure that we are getting the data in, in usable formats and rather than just someone just dumping a whole lot of data on you and saying, you know, good luck. Well, speaking of shiny new toys, it seems like every week there's new platforms popping up, particularly around fan engagements and and even lots of other innovative technologies that are promising the world. But each week, each month, fan engagement platforms and and technologies, they, they pop up. How do we and you keep up with what data is not only appropriate, but more importantly, is actually collectible? That's a perennial challenge for both Kemba and Turnstile. Um, you know, and I think the way that we're addressing that is uh, our proprietary research, because it's single source and it's consistently applied across 25 global markets, allows us to make like-for-like comparison between you know, sports properties or sport entertainment properties because of the single source nature of it. So that sort of um, consistency is really important for comparative purposes. I suppose as we move further down the strategic process or, or the valuation process, you can then deep dive into data verticals, as, as we call them. So you might sort of sit with a client and say, well, look, our data says that you should be investing in music and you should be investing in Korean pop, for example, and we can get a client there by, you know, by using our data. But our data is never going to be good 
as, say, Spotify than actually knowing what is streaming in Korean pop at the moment. So that's where we would say using an industry vertical like, you know, Spotify or Twitch or, you know, Strata data, and there's so many industry verticals of data out there. But at the starting point, you need some data sets that allow you to make that comparison. So, you know, it really is, you know, we, we talk about being sort of data agnostic in, in, in the sense that we want to pull it from different places and it's about sort of then making sure that we're appropriately applying that data um, depending on the question that we're trying to address. So you speak about Spotify and Twitch and how Turnstile is agnostic like that, but rights holders obviously have some traditional fan data sources and often they've relied on those for long periods of time and they've grown to be an integral part of their business and they've built their processes and reporting around them and they, and they deeply trust them, rightly or wrongly. But are there any new fan data sources that you are seeing the industry start to use? There's a lot, and I think you know what's interesting is as you start understanding what's accessible just publicly through APIs, you realise how much is out there. You know, we we did some really interesting work with Adidas in China uh, two or three years ago, where you know we were helping them understand the behaviour of running in 23 of the biggest cities in China. You know, and we accessed Strava data and we're overlaying that against sell-through data and store. So it was a really nice example of how you could sort of build a, a strategic narrative by taking our data that said that running was important and taking the point of purchase data from out of us that told us where they were selling running shoes and overlaying that with Strava data showing the hotspots for running in Shanghai or Guangzhou or or Beijing. So I think, you know, that that to me is a really nice example of just how much data is out there if you can sort of put it together. But um, it often said, isn't it, that there's no shortage of data out there. It's about sort of how you apply and how you use it. And I think that's, um, that's very true. As you say, there's lots of different data sources out there. How important is it that you have people working in an organisation that can creatively think about how to link different data sources together to try and build a vision of something? It's massively important. I think it's, you know, as I said before, you know, we're very conscious about being data agnostic in the sense that we don't really care where it comes from as long as it addresses the client need. So I think there's two things there. There's one, yeah, how do you sort of put that data together into a logical way, which which takes um, some unique skills. And I think there's also key challenges is, is, you know, and we quite often have to counsel clients to say, you know what, the data now is not going to solve this question. You, you've got to make a, make a call. You've got to make a decision. Um, I think, yeah, the, the, the risk a little bit sometimes is that you're just looking for data to solve everything. I mean, quite often our, um, our job is to, narrow those guessing parameters and get it down to a smaller area to guess or make a call and then apply some sophistication, some gut feel to it, so some creativity or some gut feel to it. I think, you know, if you're looking for data that always solves the problem, I think you're going to be disappointed. But I think also the risk of stifling creativity because sometimes that breakthrough idea comes from pivoting and actually going somewhere a little bit different. You mentioned Adidas and China and Strava data, which sounds super cool. I'd love to see that in in action. Do you find that there are any regions that are more sophisticated than others around fan data measurement? I think the US, from our experience, is definitely the most sophisticated. And I think the level of sophistication that sits in franchises and I think particularly in the ticketing industry, I think you can sort of see how quickly that's evolved over there. So I think probably the US from a sophistication point of view, 
I think from a sort of volume of data, China's fascinating because it's just so much data there and the data sets are massive. You know, probably not the same degree of focus on privacy on, on a lot of data in China still. I don't think necessarily the sophistication sitting in either the brands or the rights holders to use that data. So I think you sort of see different characteristics in different regions. But I think, you know, the US definitely from a sophistication perspective and China definitely from a, from a volume of data perspective. And what about measurement differences? Do you see different units of measurement being used or having more importance placed on them in different regions or are they all pretty much standard metrics that they're working with? We don't see much variance between regions um, per se. I think the variance we tend to see more is in what the, the brand or the rights holder is looking to address. I think, you know, if you look at brands, for instance, you, you may have a, a Chinese brand that's looking to build awareness on the global market, so therefore awareness is more important to them versus maybe a more mature Western brand that's the conversation is more around consideration or loyalty or sales. And similarly, I think on the rights holder side as well, depending on sort of where the sport is in its, in its life cycle, they'll be looking at different metrics. So I think it's more, we see more variance there rather than necessarily by region. Let's start to move into some fairly pointed questions, hopefully some tough ones that will give us some great insights. Rob, how can a rights holder prove return on investment value to a brand, someone that's sponsoring them, if there isn't really any decent media equivalency measurement available? So this point is that media equivalency in itself is not an ROI metrics, and I think this is where the industry's probably evolved down the wrong path the last 20 years. It may provide some perspective on logo impressions, but it's a long way from being an RRI metric. So and the analogy I give is it'd be like a marketing director claiming that they had a great ROI because they delivered a certain amount of rating points for their 30-second commercial. You know, if, if anything, it's an input, but it's definitely not an output. So I think as an industry, we need to be really clear that media frequencies were never designed to and are clearly not an RRI um, metrics. Our view would be that RRI metrics really need to be calibrated against the objectives of the sponsorship. So, and, and every brand will have very different reasons why they're investing. You know, it could be that they're looking to drive consumer loyalty, they're looking to drive sales. It could be that it's a staff engagement initiative and they want to um, you know, motivate and reward their staff. It could be a way of motivating and rewarding key trade partners. So that RI equation will vary massively across those outcomes and media frequencies will not address those, those types of outcomes. So I think to answer the premise of your question is, can a rights holder build an ROI equation for a brand without decent media frequencies? Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's a more holistic set of metrics that will define success in the ROI. And I think, you know, if you also think about it this way, that some of the world's biggest sponsorships are solely or largely composed of intellectual property where there is no media equivalency or no exposure. So, so there's clear proof points in the market that media equivalency cannot be the answer for a return on investment uh, question. Great segue into my next question because I wanted to start to talk about IP a little bit. Why do you think understanding the value of IP is important in sponsorship reporting? Look, IP, we think, is critical to understand the, the fair market price of sponsorship. And as I said before, you know, I think one of the frustrations that we've had with the over-reliance on media frequencies is it just doesn't adequately value 
properties that are predominantly made of IP. So when people tell us that IP is a, is a nebulous concept and it can't be measured, you know, I'd point to an Olympics deal that Coca-Cola might have done or NFL deals, which are largely IP. You know, if you look at an NFL playing field, there's not much exposure on the on the playing surface. It's really the rights to associate with the NFL, um, Wimbledon, um, the Masters. The entertainment industry is a really good proof point of this. You know, if we think about a you know a Coca-Cola sponsorship of maybe someone like Katy Perry, and that's all almost all IP. Um, Katy's not wearing branding on her dress, and it's not broadcast. It's about the, the rights to associate with a Katy Perry tour. So there's really clear examples in the market of IP value. The challenge is sort of how you benchmark that and how you price that, and that's really sort of what we've been focusing on from a turnstile perspective. But as I said before. I think the really encouraging thing is that for different reasons, both rights holders and brands are asking for a perspective about how to value IP. So I think we've got a, a really interesting opportunity in the industry to build some common metrics and benchmarks around um, value intellectual property uh, from a sponsorship perspective. I would agree. I think it's very exciting. You said your view is that IP is really valuable in looking at fair market price, and I don't want you to potentially throw large chunks of our industry under the bus, but is IP value something that rights holders really understand well enough, and and even brands, do they understand it well enough? Look, I don't think they do, and and I'm not going to be critical of them either because I think it's actually the role of you know, businesses like ours to help provide the tools and the metrics to them to understand that. You know, if, if I was a, a rights holder or a brand, it's really hard to value IP by themselves because they need the aggregation of data across a broad section of the industry to understand that commercial value. So, again, if we take it outside the sponsorship industry, it would be like saying to a client, what's the value of a 30-second television commercial in the US? Now, Unless you go to a media agency who has visibility of the market and the benchmarks, you don't know what that price is. Um, you don't know whether or not you're paying a good price or a bad price. So I think to answer your question, I think we all agree that rights holders and brands want to understand more about IP. But as I say, it really is up to you know businesses like ours to actually help them do that by building methodologies and data sets that provide those benchmarks. Okay, well, outside of media, what are those things that brands are looking for to prove value in the partnerships that they have with rights holders? It goes back to probably what, what I said before. It depends on what they're looking to get out of the sponsorship. So, you know, when we, from a Gemma perspective, are, are building bespoke ROI frameworks, you know, we, we might be looking at, you know, changes in staff engagement numbers or changes in trade engagement numbers. You know, we did a job recently for a client where we looked at, you know, incremental shelf space that was acquired through trade partners because of the sponsorship. So there's a really broad cross-section of metrics that clients are looking for. And again, it's it's not typically a media equivalency output. Um, that might have some, provide some degree of relativity, but in terms of the ROI piece, There'll be more of those more pointy business metrics that um, brands are looking for to sort of assess um, sponsorship ROI. It's obviously a changing landscape, and there's people like yourself and Turnstile and Gemba that are really driving some change in focus on this front. What's your view on what's on the horizon for rights holders and brands? I'll give you some 
fairly broad topics. You can either focus on one or two of them or give me some answers across a couple of them or a, a generic answer. But what's on the horizon for rights holders and brands in terms of things like sponsorship decision-making, sponsorship tracking, and even evaluation of sponsorships? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. <laughs> Look, I, I think I think we're probably reaching a point, as I said before, where there's no shortage of data out there, and, and I'm sure there'll be more data sets coming on board. But it's, I think it's probably the next evolution of usage of you know thinking that you know whether it's a client sitting on their own data sets or, or, or a, a client sort of accessing third-party data is how, how do you sort of weave all those data sets together, whether it be client data, proprietary data from an agency or third-party data that sort of builds a, a coherent strategy. Um, but that, to me, feels like the next evolution. I think we've gone through a really large focus, you know, for the last 10 years on sort of data capture and, you know, still some organisations have some way to go but trying to get clean data sets and usable data sets. I think the challenge now is actually, you know, how do we use that and, and you know, going back to, to your original question, better usage of all those data sources will help decision-making, you know, sponsorship tracking and evaluation because now experience quite often the data is there. It's just actually applying the data to the right question that the client's trying to address. It's exciting times and it really feels like it's a, it's a time in the industry where we're being pushed forward by the opportunities that the data can provide organisations on both sides of the fence. So, Rob, if people want to get in contact with you and find out more about Gemba and or Turnstile, what can they do? I'm fairly active on social media, so you can check out what we're doing on my Twitter account, which is at MillsyRob. Also, um, I'm on LinkedIn account as well, and um, if anybody wants to email me directly, my uh, email address is rob at thegembergroup.com. Outstanding. Rob Mills, Global CEO and Director at Gemba and Turnstile, thank you so much for taking us inside sponsorship data, measurement, valuation and reporting. Great pleasure. Thank you for your time. Great chat with Rob, and thanks again to him for finding some time in his very busy schedule. There were some great views and insights in that chat, and it is clear that while we have come a long way, there's still so much opportunity for rights holders and brands who really want to take the lead in this area and apply best practice. I think this area will become more and more of an important element in what we all strive for in creating truly valuable sponsorship partnerships. That's a wrap for episode 75. Thanks again to Ben, Glenn, and Paul for getting in touch for a shout out and helping me not feel so sad so now listeners it's up to you reach out and say hi and i'll give you a shout out in episode 76 if you want to connect with me you can do so on linkedin to search for daniel oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on twitter using the handle at sponserve and if you want to connect with core software's head of international business mark thompson travels right around the world and would love to catch up with you for a beer, a coffee, a lunch and a chat about the industry, you can catch him on mark.thompson at coresoftware.com or search for him on LinkedIn as well. Don't forget you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Sponsurf. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.